Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, that by your love you sent your Son into our world and that by your grace we can receive him into our lives. Give us eyes to see and faith to believe so that our greatest joy and eternal life may be found in knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Amen. Whenever history is written, we should never understand it as an exhaustive account of all that has happened. By necessity, a writer must always make decisions about what's important to say and how best to present that. As historians go, Luke is universally regarded as a first-class scholar. His research and investigations are meticulous in detail and he writes an orderly account from first-person eyewitnesses. But he doesn't pretend to be an impartial observer. He writes as a Christian whose life has been transformed by the risen Christ. And he writes so that all may know the certainty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Luke tells us that Jesus was born in the midst of a census taken throughout the entire Roman world, at the decree of Caesar Augustus, he's making at least two things clear. Firstly, he makes it clear that Jesus' birth didn't happen once upon a time in a magical land far, far away. It actually happened in a very ordinary place on the edge of the Roman Empire and at a time that's clearly dated in recorded history. See, this is a story and it's a true story. And though it's an extraordinary story, it's gritty and it's real. The other reason for noting that Jesus was born at the time of Caesar Augustus is by way of contrast. You see, Augustus is a Latin word that means holy or revered. And up until the time of this Caesar, it was a word used only to refer to the gods. But now Caesar Augustus takes that title upon himself. And so revered was Caesar at the time that some cities in Asia Minor adopted his birthday as the first day of the year and they hailed him as a saviour, even saviour of the whole world. And he was a sort of saviour, for his rule guaranteed Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But it wasn't a peace beyond all understanding. The understanding was very clear. Submit to Roman rule or you will be crushed without mercy. The contrast with Jesus, the real saviour, well, it couldn't be greater. Jesus comes not in pomp or ceremony or glory, but in simplicity and poverty and humility. Jesus comes not as a man who would become God, but rather as God who becomes a man. He comes conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young teenage girl in the backwaters of Galilee. And now Mary, close to full term in her pregnancy, is on her way to Bethlehem, certainly to comply with the decree of Caesar's census, but just as certainly to fulfill what God had promised, that you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. And though Mary was an insignificant nobody from a nowhere town, 
She understood the enormity of what God had called her to do. When she learned that she was pregnant with the Son of the Most High, she sang the great Magnificat, and her soul praised the Lord, and her spirit rejoiced in God her Saviour, for he had been mindful of her humble state. And of her promised son, she recognised that he would perform mighty deeds with his arm. He would scatter those who were proud in their inmost thoughts, for God brings down rulers from their thrones and he lifts up the humble. The story of Joseph and Mary, therefore, exemplifies how extraordinary God's grace is. God's Messiah, King Jesus, well, he doesn't come to the proud and the powerful, he comes to the humble and the powerless. And Jesus first makes his presence felt to Mary, no doubt with plenty of kicks to the belly, but now in the stable he comes to Mary with the pangs of birth. And Luke's description of that is hauntingly simple. He says in verse 6, While I were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. If only it was that simple. We know that this is not a modern hospital, but we shouldn't imagine that it's a freshly swept stall that you might find at the local show. This is a young girl giving birth to her first child, and she's lying on the cold, hard ground. And she's surrounded by the stench of manure and acrid straw. And into the hands of a trembling carpenter, clumsy with fear, comes the Son of God, slippery with fetal fluid. His limbs are waving helplessly, as if falling through space, and his face is grimaced as he gasps his first breath in the cold air. Hard to believe that the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. Pretty sure Mary and Joseph would have shed a tear. And Luke finishes the picture in verse 7. He says, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Mary would have counted his fingers and toes and together Mary and Joseph would have wiped Jesus as best they could in the firelight. And then she placed him in a feed trough. I doubt there was a child born that day that would seem to have lower prospects. And that's the thing about God. His son comes to us not in majesty but in poverty. And we must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins, with a great sense of need and a graced sense of our own insufficiency. The incarnation is a pattern for how God works, how he works in the lives of all he calls to himself. The one who said to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, but when I made the clouds their garment and wrapped them in thick darkness? This is the same one who himself is now wrapped in swaddling cloths. The omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent God has entered our world as a baby. So what does it mean that God really did become human? That he didn't simply appear to be human, that he really was flesh and blood. As a real baby in the cradle, he would have examined his clenched fists with uncomprehending fascination, as babies do. 
He didn't feign babyhood and just pretend to be helpless and needy. He would have experienced the development of human reason and language, and he would be taught things that he didn't know. He walked, he thought, and he talked like a baby before he did so as a man. The growing pains of the Son of God were just as real for him as they are for us. The only difference was that Jesus did his learning, his growing, and his maturing sinlessly and perfectly. But this doesn't mean that he was an instant learner. He wasn't born a carpenter. He had to learn that from his earthly father, Joseph. Jesus Christ lived with a human body, mind and soul, with all of our limitations except for sin. He really did that. It really did happen. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. And the implications of this reality are utterly extraordinary, not only at Christmas time, but year round. Because his humanity is like ours in every way except for sin, then there is no expression of our humanity that he does not know full well. Therefore, he doesn't come to us as one who's unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. He has an unequal capacity for sympathy that goes far beyond any intellectual understanding. You see, Jesus doesn't just imagine how we might feel. He feels as we do because he became as we are. Look again from verse 8 at what happens next. That the announcement of Christ's birth was first made to shepherds, not to the high and the mighty. Did you know that according to the Mishnah, the oral traditions of the rabbis, the shepherds at that time were low on the rung of social acceptability. They were considered as thieves, only one up from lepers. And yet the announcement is first made to them. Again, we're reminded that God comes to the needy and the poor in spirit. And that's his pattern. There is no evidence that he ever reveals himself to the self-sufficient and the proud. The gospel is clearly for those who know that they need Jesus. For those who need Jesus, not as someone who gets dusted off once a year and placed in the nativity scene on Christmas Eve, but rather for those who need Jesus as Saviour, for those who know they need the forgiveness of their sins. And that's something that every one of us needs. And so the words of the angels spoken to the shepherds, well, they're not for them alone, they're for all of us. Have a look from verse 10. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And the incarnation makes that possible. Christ can be our saviour, our representative before God, because he perfectly identifies with us in our humanity and yet without sin. And the perfection of his humanity doesn't happen simply because he was born. Christ needed to learn obedience from what he suffered. And by his suffering, he became the perfect saviour and the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
So whatever our situation, he can deliver us. As the angel says, the good news is for all the people. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you need, he can deliver you, he can help you, he can save you. Jesus is able to save completely all who come to God through him. And that was the message of the angel to the shepherds. And how the hosts of heaven respond to that announcement is beyond amazing. We read it from verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Now, this is not three angels with a tambourine, a harp and a trumpet. This is a great company. This is a multitude. It's not 50, it's not 150, it's not even 1,500. This is beyond counting. This would be every one of God's angels turning up to witness the most amazing event that had ever happened in the history of the universe. The heavenly host would have stretched from horizon to horizon, obscuring the winter constellations. The poet John Milton imagined them as the helmed cherubim and the sworded seraphim. In glittering ranks with wings displayed, the stars with deep amaze stood fixed in steadfast gaze. And when they lifted their voices to God, they with all the heavens would declare the glory of God. For they were announcing what Zechariah described as the long-awaited rising sun coming to us from heaven. At the creation of the world, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And now on this occasion, even greater than creation, the angels again join their voices to sing the praise of God's greatest gift and God's greatest miracle, the birth of our perfect saviour, our God who became man. And though the angels had front row seats, well the best part is ours, because we are the ones who receive God's grace. God became a man, he didn't become an angel. But God redeemed us, not the heavenly beings. Ours is the best part because it is to us that the Saviour came. And the declaration of his coming can be reason for us to sing year round. When the angels sang, they first sang upwards as they glorified God in the highest heaven. And then they sang outwards as they announced peace on earth to men upon whom God's favour rests. And I guess that begs the question, doesn't it? Does God's favour rest upon us? Certainly God loves us, we know, for he sent Christ Jesus into the world to die for our sins. But does his favour, does his grace rest upon us? Are we the recipients of his grace and mercy? God's grace we know, well it is unbounded and it is unfathomable. But we also know that there's nothing automatic about it. Like every gift that comes from God, it's tied directly to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if by faith in Christ Jesus... You are the recipient of God's favour, then the best part is truly yours, and you do have a song to sing 
for all of eternity. And when the angels stopped singing and the shepherds were left alone, well, they didn't muck around. They said in verse 15, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And having seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds had heard about Jesus, but it wasn't enough. They wanted to see for themselves. And having seen for themselves, it wasn't enough just to go home, satisfied that Jesus really was a cute little fella. They wanted to tell all who would listen about the message of the angels and this extraordinary birth of the Saviour. And having seen Jesus and proclaimed his coming, they continued glorifying and praising God for all that they had experienced. And that's the thing about Jesus and the message of salvation and our response to him. You see, it's not enough just to hear about Jesus. It's not enough just to peek in the manger and say, what a cutie. Don't it make you feel all warm and fuzzy? You see, the truth is that even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not born within us, we would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must also be born in our hearts. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, well, without the living Christ, it's a yellow brick road to darkness. Luke gives us this account of Jesus' birth so we wouldn't miss the point. The real saviour of the world well, wasn't Caesar Augustus, and nor can it be any great world leader. The only saviour of the world is Jesus, the Son of God. He came to earth, veiled in Mary's flesh, he was born in human flesh. He lived and died in the flesh. He was resurrected in the flesh. And now he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. The incarnation was real. His identification with us is complete. His understanding and sympathy are genuine because nothing we might suffer is outside his experience. Being made like us in every way, yet without sin, he can save us, whatever our situation. This baby, God's son, demands our complete allegiance. He really did come into the world, and because of this, he really can come into our hearts. As we sing in the carols, so we declare with our lips, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Amen.